0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Hey, good morning, Hope Oakville. So glad to uh, be here with you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll meet you there. In a minute, it is true. When uh, Carl and I both first started working here uh, at Hope Oakville, we served together on Sundays. We served together in the weekly uh, um, youth ministry, the young adults ministry. We even spent our days off together doing a lot of skiing up in Collingwood. And when we, when my family first moved to Brampton to plant a church, um, Carl asked me to to help with a a youth ski trip that they were doing up in Collingwood. Carl and I like to have our enthusiasm for winter sports overflow into the youth ministry. And uh, I, I thought that's great. Now, people had told me that if I uh, if I just head up straight Highway 10, now that I live in Brampton, I can avoid all the Highway 400. I just got to head up 10 and I'll get to Collingwood. No one. T- this was the days before Google Maps and all that sort of thing. No one told me that you need to make a, a, an extra right and a left to, to get through Stainer and then to Collingwood. So I took this group of of young people. And I thought, I'm just going to go right up 10. Everyone says, go right up 10. So we ended up like two hours later in Owen Sound, (laughs) like 90 minutes from Collingwood. And uh, a a number of other things happened involving an OPP officer and other things uh, along the way. Uh, I'm telling you this because you you may not want me to give you a ride home. the other day I was visiting my friend in downtown Toronto uh, who's doing ministry there and I was trying to get back onto the gardener. I'm sure we've all had this experience. You're, you're crawling down Spadina and you don't get over in time. You're, you're one lane. Oh, So then I end up on Lakeshore or something like that. So I make this quick left and I'm trying to figure out where I am and I'm one car away from getting on the ferry to get on Porter Airlines. So then I make another, you know, sharp left turn around. I'm turning everywhere, and then I'm on trolley tracks. I'm on a one-way streetcar-only lane with a streetcar coming uh, towards me. So I had to go up over a curve on that one. And sometimes, even if you know the destination, it's those directional decisions along the way that can create a lot of chaos in your life. Loved ones, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ in North America is a church at a crossroads. I think we're pretty clear on the destination. We we all want the new heavens and the new earth. We all want the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to rule physically and presently here on the planet. We may disagree on how all of that is going to take place chronologically, but we all agree on the destination. We want heaven. We want God's presence we want eternity. But there's been a lot in the last little while, there's been a lot of important crossroads decisions that churches have had to make. And some of them we've, we've made good choices on and some of them we haven't. By God's grace, we can correct the, the wrong choices that we've made. But I don't believe that the difficult crossroads moments are over. I don't believe that we're not done making decisions about direction. Decisions about whether we are going to follow the truth or whether we're going to believe lies. The decision of whether we are going to follow the spirit or whether we are going to follow our flesh. The decision of whether or not we're going to assert our rights as an individual or whether we're gonna embrace our responsibility as a member of a community the decision of whether we're going to seek after the the applause of our culture, or if we're going to seek the approval of the audience of one. These are all vitally important crossroads decisions that we must make. The church at Corinth was a a church at a crossroads, both metaphorically and geographically. Let me start with the geography. This is where Corinth is, a couple of other sort of major uh, landmarks for biblical geography. It was sort of right in between Rome and uh, Ephesus. Everything in the world went through Corinth. Corinth was this little nine kilometer strip of land. And let's blow it up again. If you wanted to get anywhere in the Roman world, and Ephesus, of course, represents Jerusalem, the Middle East, Antioch, all of those other places. Rome, of course, represents everything to the west. If you wanted to go anywhere in an efficient manner, you wanted to go through Corinth. That little nine kilometer strip of land, the Corinthians had figured out how to profit from it. Rather than risk a sea voyage all around here in the unpredictable Mediterranean Sea, why not stop off in Corinth? will carry all of your cargo on carts while, while your boat sails empty around or you hire another boat on the other side. Then they even built carts for the boats. These giant skateboards, they would haul your boat up out of the water full of all of its cargo and wheel it for nine kilometers. While you're doing that, you need to stop and eat something. And you better stop in at the temple to worship the water god to make sure you don't drown on the rest of your voyage. And why not visit a local brothel? But the temples were basically brothels anyway, so two for one. And the Corinthians had found a way to profit over their geography. You couldn't go anywhere. Sort of like those airports in the U.S., like Chicago, O'Hare, or Georgia. You can't go anywhere in the States without, without having a layover in one of these. Everyone had a layover in Corinth. Corinth was a happening place. Athens was just to the north, so you had all of the philosophy and the wisdom and the the education and the academia. You had all of the the culture, all of the, the melting pot of all of the foods and the cultures all meeting in this place. There was wealth everywhere. Everyone was making money. There was this huge entrepreneurial spirit. It was all happening in Corinth. And so many of the Corinthian Christians were successful business people, part of the cultural elites. And they had come to a crossroad. They had come to a crossroads decision of, are we going to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly, or are we going to compromise in order to please our neighbors, in order to be accepted in the broader community? Not only that, there, there were some very successful Christians. There were also some poor Christians. There were Christians from different parts of the world, different backgrounds. And so the church at Corinth was dealing with conflict on the inside and compromise on the outside. As you read the Corinthians, they, were, they had divisions. There were lawsuits. They were dividing over how they did the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gifts was a major problem. But then they had the issue of compromise with the world, the worldly wisdom, worldly views on sexuality and marriage and food and idols and head coverings, and so the church at Corinth was divided over all of these things. There was conflict within the church, and then there was pressure to compromise outside of the church. So let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, down to chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Chapter 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, there are things that we know we need to learn. We pray that you would teach us. And God, we also know that there are things inside of us in the way that we think and the way that we behave and the way those things intersect. We know there are things about us that need to change. And so we ask that you would not only teach us, God, but that you would also transform us. And so, God, I pray for open ears and open hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would open my mouth in such a way such that as your living and active word is taught and preached, that people would not merely hear my voice but would hear your voice speaking and so God we pray that you would do what only you can do in Jesus name amen amen well you might have noticed as I was reading that Paul makes three prohibitive statements three do not statements the first one is there in verse 18 let no one deceive himself Then verse 21, so let no one boast in men. And then the last verse I read, verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. These were three crossroads decisions. These were three times where Paul's saying, don't get off the road here, don't turn there. These three things he's telling them to be aware of. And those three do not statements are going to form the outline for Uh, our message this morning. Here's the first one. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Verse 18 says, let no one deceive himself. Are you easily deceived? When you get a robocall from CRA saying that you need to call this number immediately and give your social insurance number and all your, are you deceived by that? When a Nigerian prince out of all the people in the world chooses to email you, are you deceived by that? Hopefully you're a little more street smart, but the person that we need to be on the most or on the lookout the most in terms of deception is ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. If we talk long enough or think hard enough, we can find justification for doing just about anything. We can draw logic diagrams. We can explain how we feel. We can even flip through the Bible and find any verse to try to justify whatever we want to do. And Paul saw this in the church of Corinth. That they were heading in some pretty concerning areas as it related to the wisdom of this world. And Paul said, don't, don't deceive yourself. He goes on to say, if, any, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. There were many in the Corinthian church who were considered wise. They were teachers, they were leaders, they were pillars in the community. And they were considered wise. And Paul says that the, the, the biggest obstacle to becoming truly wise is assuming that you already are. Right? The, the book of Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get Wisdom, admit that you don't have it. The hardest people to teach on the planet are people who think they already know it all. So admit how little you know and allow God to teach you. Paul has been talking a lot about wisdom and folly. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter one and chapter two is all about contrasting God's wisdom and how the cross is folly to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And now he's picking up on that theme saying, Christians, don't be afraid to stand out. Don't, you, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be faithful as a Christian and have everyone in the world think that you're really wise and intelligent. The world thinks the gospel is foolishness. We just have to admit that. We've lost the popularity contest. Paul goes on to explain in verse 19, for it is written, he backs this up with scripture. He quotes Job chapter five, verse 13. He catches the wise in their craftiness. This is quoting Job's friend, Eliphaz. Now, quoting from Job is kind of difficult because at the end of Job, God shows up in the whirlwind and says, all those guys, Eliphaz and all his friends, don't listen to anything that they said. So why here does Paul quote Eliphaz? Well, Eliphaz is talking about God and the issue with Eliphaz and Job's friends was that they were 100% right about God and what they said, but 100% wrong about Job, especially in this context. Is it true that God catches the wise in their craftiness and their schemes? Isn't it true that he exposes lies and reveals the truth? Isn't it true? It is true about God, but it wasn't true that, that Job was one of those crafty people. And so he quotes Job chapter five of verse 13. Then he quotes Psalm 94, verse 11. God knows the thoughts of the wise, those who think they're wise, that their thoughts are futile. That That's like a mist. You got out of your, out of your house this morning on a cold October morning, you probably saw mist come off your breath. There's fog all around us today, isn't there? There's mist, it's not gonna be here forever. The, the breath that came out of your mouth, that mist, it's only there for a moment. Sometimes we're so impressed by the wisdom of this world or the philosophies in this world or the influence that people have in our culture. It's just a breath. God knows it. we got to lean on God's wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, and not on worldly wisdom. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can have it both ways. The church at Corinth was wrestling with you know some of the people we learn about in school, and their different philosophies—Aristotle, or or Plato, or any other a Greco-Roman a philosopher. Philosophy is a is a box, and a philosophical uh, uh, um, uh, approach is just simply a way of explaining where meaning comes from, what true virtue is, where everything came from and where it's headed. there's a certain, so Plato had a box and Aristotle had a box and all the Greek philosophers had a box. And the, the church at Corinth was saying, you know, you know we, can, we can take the Bible, we can take the gospel and cram it into the box and we can, we, we can, we can fit in with the rest of the world. God cannot be put in a box. Similarly today, Secular humanism that's, that's rooted in evolutionary biology is a box. It explains where the world came from, tries to at least, and explain, tries to explain what virtue means and, and what life is all about. And some well-meaning Christians trying to win favor in the broader culture, saying, hey, we can take the book of Genesis as long as we leave this part out. We can cram it into the box. God can't fit in a box. He spoke the universe into existence. He spoke it. It might have made a big bang when he spoke. I don't know. But don't try to to fit the ways of God to, to, to conform it into the ways of this world. Similarly, our world today has a box of looking at the world in terms of oppression and judgment and justice and reconciliation and all all what that ought to look like. And again, some very well-meaning, compassionate Christians are trying to take the Bible and fit it into the world's box. God is judge. That's the end of it. He can't be fit into a box. And then coming at us with all kinds of speed is this box of expressive individualism and what that means for the family and for gender and for sexuality. And again, well-meaning Christians are trying to take the gospel and cram it into that box and say that we can coexist. We don't fit in. This world is not our home. Do not be deceived. Paul says, be very, very careful not to be deceived by the wisdom of this world. But it's not just being caught up in this, the things of this world, but being deceived by thinking that you can still have the gospel and be faithful while having the world think you're great. That's not how it works. That's not what we signed up for. So his first prohibition is do not be deceived By worldly wisdom. And he explains the implications of that. In verse 21. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. And then he gives this list of eight things. The first three are people. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. This leads us to our second point. The second prohibition is don't divide over Christian leaders. Don't divide over Christian leaders. Leaders, Paul says, let no one boast in men. All of these philosophers, all of these teachers, all of these orators in Corinth and Athens and all around, they were like celebrities. They were big names. They were well-known. They were celebrated. They drew big crowds. And the Corinthian Christians were saying, hey, if we really want our church to grow we need to start to, to platform the leaders in our church. We need to start to talk about them the way the Athenians talk about their philosophers. We need, to, we need to, how about this? How about we make our pastors into celebrities? You think that's a new concept? It's not. Paul says, don't do that. He mentions three names. The first one is his name, Paul. There were some people in the church at Corinth that really wanted to elevate Paul. These were like the OG members of the church, okay? They were there in Acts chapter 18 when Paul got the church started, when they were in the synagogue and he got kicked out. And where did he go? Not far. He started preaching in the house next door. And then what happened? The ruler of the synagogue gets saved. The very guy who kicked Paul out ends up becoming a Christian. He moves next door. And then the gospel begins to spread. So some people... They were big on Paul. Then there's the name Apollos. As you keep reading in Acts chapter 18, Paul wanted to leave Corinth. God said, stay for I have many in the city. So Paul stays for several more months. Then he eventually moves on. Then we hear about this hotshot young preacher, very eloquent, named Apollos. This guy could preach like fire. But his doctrine was a little off. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, get him sort of straight on how to teach the Bible, and then they set him loose in Corinth. So you had this other group of people that were like, no, we, need, we don't need teachers like Paul. He was bold and courageous and stuff, but he wasn't that eloquent. We need someone like Apollos. If we're going to change this city for Christ, we need eloquence. We need wisdom. And Apollos has that. So you had this whole Apollos group. Then you had this like OG of the OG group, this Peter group. And they were like, we were there on the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire, different languages, 3,000 people getting baptized. That's the kind of leader we need. We follow Peter. So you had one group saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. He said, it doesn't say Peter, it says Cephas. I know, Peter had like a name problem, right? Sometimes he's Simon, sometimes he's Cephas, sometimes he's Peter. It gets kind of confusing. So they were all divided. Sometimes, rather than letting who we are in Christ define us, we like to break off into these little groups. We like to talk about who we follow or who we podcast or who our pastor is. Or Sometimes uh, people want to uh, follow a leader or be associated with an influencer because, uh, because the person is attractive and they want to be associated with, with being attractive. That's never been a problem at Hope Mississauga. Other people gravitate towards leaders that come across as intelligent or articulate or particularly courageous. And the things that we want to be true about ourselves, we see in some other leader. And by associating ourselves with that leader, there was something about Paul that drew a bunch of people to him. Something about Apollo. Something about Peter. We've got to be aware of those things. And Paul's answer or reason why we should not boast in men... He says in verse 21, it's because all things are yours. All things are yours. He says, don't divide over these groups. Don't let these groups define you. Don't say, I belong to this group. No, the group belongs to you. Because all things are yours. Loved ones, there are some things that Pentecostals could really learn from Presbyterians. And vice versa. Versa. And there are some things that people who have a a more traditional expression of worship or liturgy could really learn from churches that are more contemporary and vice versa. We don't need to divide on these issues because it all belongs to us. Peter preached Christ. Paul preached Christ. Apollos preached Christ. Rejoice that they're preaching Christ and recognize that they all belong to you. And then... Paul's list gets a little bit out of control. Do you see where he goes (laughs) after Cephas? He's making a list, so he starts with three men, and then the next thing on the list is the world. And then he just keeps going. Life or death or the present or the future. He says, all are yours. How, how is it possible that in the fridge, there's a piece of masking tape on a Tupperware container and it has your name on it. And in that Tupperware container is the world and life and death along with Paul and Apollos and whatever spirit. How is that possible? Well, look at verse 13. Oh, sorry, verse 23. It says, and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So let's interpret this passage a little bit backward. Let's start with the statement that Christ is God's. Christ is the Son. The Son belongs to the Father. And because the Son belongs to the Father, everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. It's his inheritance. It belongs to him. Jesus has eternally preexisted as a Son. And therefore, deserves the, is entitled to the inheritance of all that the father possesses. So Christ is God's. And then it says, (laughs) and you are Christ at the beginning of the verse. The father belongs to Jesus and we, or sorry, Jesus belongs to the father and we belong to Jesus. See, here's what we don't always recognize when we think about the gospel and its implications. As we sang about this morning, when Jesus came to this earth, he came and lived a perfect life. He suffered and died on our behalf. He died as our substitute. When Jesus went to the cross, he was treated on the cross the way you and I deserve to be treated as sinners. He was treated the way you and I deserve to be treated as sinners. So that, When we respond to the gospel and are redeemed by his blood, we as sinners would be treated the way he deserves to be treated as a son. That's the exchange that takes place. We have been adopted into the family. We're written into the will. Jesus' inheritance is now our inheritance. Jesus owns the world, so we do too. Jesus owns life and death. He conquered death. So we own that too. Jesus owns the present and the future. So it all, loved ones, it all belongs to us. So all the things that we see in the world and the wars and the rumors of wars and the controversies and the scandals and the things that distract us and worry us, it all actually belongs to us because it belongs to Jesus and we belong to him. And life and death, it all belongs to us. As I think back on the last couple of years, I think the world learned a lot about Christians and I don't think it was all good. I just wish at the end of the day, if the world could have seen that Christians are not afraid to die. Yes, some Christians want to follow along with this or yes, some Christians might want to push back on this or on that and all that's fine or good. Follow your conscience, just don't be a jerk about it. But did we show the world that we're not afraid to die? This was our moment to say that we were, you know, wherever you stood on the issue you could still communicate and reiterate life and death actually belongs to me because I belong to Jesus and he conquered death. Because loved ones, death, death is like a doorway. That's all it is for us. I mean right now we're in this enclosed room and there's shades over the windows but you look through the doors and you see light. Out there there's There's windows and coffee. There's a a whole world out there, isn't there? And when when, when someone passes away, they're just going through the door. It's better for them. Because life and death belongs to us. Because we belong to the one who conquered death. The present or the future, anything that you're anxious about, just remember, it all belongs to us because we belong to Christ. A really helpful parallel passage that you might not have noticed as a parallel is Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, there's that phrase, all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, there it is, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, there it is, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Loved ones, don't divide over leaders. Don't, 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 don't break into these groups based off these sub areas of what it means to follow Jesus. You belong to Jesus. and The son belongs to the father. Let me recommend a, a book for you to put on your Christmas list. It's written by an author named Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson is a charismatic Anglican, right? We can learn from all, it all belongs to us. And it's really a devotional book, really, really short chapters that just talks about things like rain and birds and trees and mountains and everyday life kind of stuff. And he talks about all things and how they all belong to us and how in the gospel we can reflect on all of these things and see the beauty of God. So I recommend uh, that that book uh, to you. Now look with me at chapter 4 verse 1. Paul says, This is how one should regard us. He says, You want to, speaking of Paul and Apollos and Peter, if if you want to think, if you want to regard Christian leaders, this is what you ought to think about them. When you look at Greg and Robbie and Chris and Tom and Bahi and Jeff, this, this is how you are to. Regard them. When you look at Carl and and Nathan and Cliff and Greg, this this is how you ought to regard them. This is the mindset that you should have. He says that they are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. Let me provide a little bit of context here. Paul has been talking a lot about Christian leadership in the book of First Corinthians, particularly in chapter three, he, he already called out those three names several times already, and he says, "Listen, you've got you to have the right perspective. We are servants." He uses the word "diakonos." That's where we get the word "deacon from." The etymology of that word is "dust on the heels," that a deacon is serving and moving around, waiting tables, that they're kicking up dust in their heels. Paul says, stop trying to make these leaders into celebrities. They're just servants. They're just deacons. Now, deacon is an official office in the church. But we're all called to serve as deacons. We're all called to kick up, our, to kick up some dust around our feet and, and serve the Lord Jesus. Then he emphasized the idea of being fellow workers in chapter 3, verse 6 to 9. To emphasize their unity. He, they talk about fellow workers in the field. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. They're fellow workers in the field. Then he called them builders in chapter three, verses 10 to 17. Builders who are building, not with wood, hay, and straw. You can build with that. You can build something really impressive looking, really quick with those materials, but it takes time and costs a lot to build with gold, silver, and precious stones because Jesus is gonna light it all on fire and see what lasts. And then now in chapter four, verse one, he introduces two new, two new terms. Servants is a, in, in chapter four, verse one, is a different word than chapter three, verse five. He uses the word huperetes. Uh, a servant in this context, it, it, it means lowest uh, row person, like in a boat, and low, lowest oarsman. But it came, it, was, came, it, it came to be known as uh, an executive assistant. Man, it's just coming to be about that time where you start to watch those movies uh, with your wife or with your uh, girlfriend. Uh, It's the same movie every time. Uh, The successful uh, downtown businesswoman goes to a small town for some reason and falls in love with a guy in a pickup truck. All right? And all of those movies start with the same opening scene. The elevator doors open. The successful businesswoman steps through. And who's there waiting for her? With the clipboard and the latte. It's the huperates. It's the executive assistant, right? And she starts telling her about her appointments and what's coming next in the calendar, right? Now, Paul is using that term to say, listen, that executive assistant has some measure of authority. They have the authority to make appointments. They have authority often over the bank accounts or that sort of thing. They manage that person. So, elders, leaders, pastors in the church are like executive assistants to Jesus. They're servants, but they have a measure of authority that needs to be honored. And then this term stewards, oikonomos, ruler of the household. We, we're familiar with that term, right? when we talk about biblical stewardship, it all belongs to God. And the steward is the servant who manages what belongs to God. But again, There's a measure of authority. That that steward has signing authority. That that steward can make decisions. So in the same way, Paul was emphasizing the insignificance and the accountability of the Christian leaders here. But now he's trying to emphasize their authority. I've been around uh, Christian ministry uh, for long enough. I mean, when I started in ministry, Robbie didn't need glasses and I had a full head of hair. And I've observed in the church at large an experiment with pastor as master. That the pastor is the master and everyone else does the deaconing and everyone else does the assisting and everyone else, the whole rest of the church and the staff, they're just holding up the platform of the other person, the pastor who is the master. And we've all seen how that turns out, haven't we? Wood, hay, and straw up in flames. We're still still dealing with some of the carnage. And these weren't even our churches where it happened. It's still a constant reminder that the pastor is not a master. The pastor is a servant. But we need to be clear about something on this authority piece because we don't like to talk about authority in our day and age. The pastor is not the master. The pastor is the servant. But that doesn't mean the congregation is the master. Jesus is the master. And we are all servants. And there are some servants who are called to deacon and deacon in a a way with unity and to build with accountability, but who have been entrusted with a level of authority, who are stewards and who are servants. He says there are stewards in verse two, or sorry, verse one, stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the gospel. The mystery reveals to what was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. What is that? It's God incarnate. It's it's Jesus suffering. It's the resurrection from the dead. Elders, leaders, pastors are called to steward the gospel and shepherd uh, the church as servants. And how do we know if we're doing a good job? Verse, verse two clarifies it. Verse two, moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. I have more and more 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 and more conversations with, uh, with Pastor Robbie, with, with Carl, with, with other leaders. And the new definition for success in light of everything that we've seen happen around us is the new definition for success is wake up, love your family, Love Jesus, lead the church, and go to bed. If you do those things, if you're faithful in those, it doesn't matter if your church is 50 or 5,000, faithfulness, it's required of a steward to be faithful. If, if there's any way that you could pray for your leaders is that they would be faithful as servants, faithful as stewards of the mystery of the gospel. Then this leads us to our third and final and It's this, don't depend on human judgment. Don't depend on human judgment. The final prohibition is gonna come at verse five, but let's begin at verse three. It says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Wow, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that what other people think about me is a small thing to me, but I mean, I just. I gotta be honest, sometimes it's a very big thing. And sometimes it's such a big thing that I make decisions on the road, that I make directional decisions, crossroads moments, rather than thinking, what does Jesus want me to do? I start to wonder, well, what would make the most people happy? And when leaders start to do that, that's a dangerous place to be. How can I become like Paul? I'm sure I'm not the don't leave me alone up here. I'm sure I'm not the only person that struggles with the fear of man. I'm sure I'm not the only person that wishes that the judgment of other people would be a small thing, but it's sometimes such a big thing. How can we become like Paul? Well, let's keep reading. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. You see, the world would be cheering for Paul, like Instagram would be going crazy about what he's saying. I'm not going to let you judge me. Uh Uh-uh. I'm my own, I march to the beat of my own drummer. I'm not going to allow society make me conform into this way or that way. I'm here out to please me and me alone. The internet would go crazy with that. But the internet doesn't know what to do with what he says next. He says, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, listen, it's a small thing what other people think about me and truth be told, it's a small thing what I think about me. And then he says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Another translation says, my conscience is clear. But he says, I'm not thereby acquitted. He says, listen, I I might have done something. I might have forgot. I might be in denial. I might just be waiting for another loving brother and sister to take the log out of their eye to come and take the speck out of mine. But Paul said, just because I think my conscience is clear doesn't acquit me. How can we be done with the fear of man? How can we be done with worrying about what other people think about us? Look what Paul says in verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul knows that the people in Corinth have these great opinions about him and why Apollos is a better leader or Peter's a better leader. The people in Corinth, they don't really know Paul. The, the criticisms that they have about Paul, Paul's like, you know what, I'm much worse. <laughs> There's only one judge. Paul, he's like, I, don't, I can't even judge myself. I don't even know myself well enough to give myself a judgment. He says, only God knows. God knows all things. He is omniscient. And he judges me. And what is Paul's judgment? What does God say about Paul? Paul. He says innocent. He says not guilty. He says justified. And what he, what he says about, about Paul, he says about Tara and he says about Randy and he says about everyone who's here who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says about Ted. He says guilty, innocent, justified. And when we truly understand the gospel, when rather than veering off the path, getting off on, on, on the exit of human judgment, stay on the path of God as judge, and remember the gospel. Remember what you deserve, and remember what you've been given. that all things are yours. What should be yours? Hell should be yours. And yet, life and death and the present and the future. The whole world belongs to you because you belong to Christ. Paul then says, practically speaking, in verse 5, as we interact with one another in the church family, he says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Paul's not against judging here. In, in chapter five, when he's talking about a man who's living a very sexually immoral life, he commands the church, judge this man. So Paul's not anti-judgment. But Paul wants to be careful that we don't judge before the time. The reason why Paul wanted that man in 1 Corinthians 5 to be judged is because he believed there was still hope for him to repent. And if you read 2 Corinthians, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like as you read 2 Corinthians 7, this man is actually welcomed back into the fellowship. So they judged, but they didn't judge before the time. They didn't give a final judgment because that belongs to God. You see, we don't know the end of the story. We want to close the book on people all the time. And meanwhile, God's just getting ready to start another chapter. So don't judge before the time. And what's going to happen at that time? Look at what he says. The things now hidden in darkness will come to light. And God will disclose the purposes of the heart. How do you know when you cross the line in terms of judgment? I know this is murky waters, right? Jesus says, don't judge. And the judgment at which you'll be measured will be measured against you. Jesus was not against judgment. Paul is not against judgment. How do you know you've crossed the line? You cross the line when you start making judgments that only God can make. Only God sees the end of the story and only God knows the whole story. We don't know what is happening in people's lives. We don't know what is happening in people's hearts. We love to guess. We love to guess. I mean, the... the uh, Between period interviews of the Leaf games, like, could they be any more boring? They always want to know, hey, when you scored that goal, what were you thinking? And we always want to, and the player's like, I was thinking I should score, I should shoot, right? We always want to know what people are thinking, and we so often assume that we know. That's when we judge wrongly. When we assume we know the purposes of someone's heart when we assume that we have light into something that God has kept in darkness until the judgment day. So, Christians are free to judge actions and words. There are actions and there are words that it's clear that are right or that are wrong. When a Christian crosses the line is when that Christian starts to judge motivation. Relationships fall apart, marriages get destroyed when people start to look at benign, neutral, even good words or actions and to say, I know why you're really doing that. I know why you're really saying, that is such a huge problem. We we don't know why people do the things that they do, but we can know what they do and we can judge those things. So what do we do if we see something and we're not quite sure? We might feel something in our spirit. What do we do? How do we know someone's heart? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So rather than talking about them or talking to them, you ask them a couple of questions. Help me to understand. Why? Why? Why did you say that? And it it, it, why are you? Why are you wearing that? Why did you just do that? We don't always. No, we don't know the end of the story and we don't know the whole story. Let me give you a quick example of this. David, when he was being selected as king, Samuel came and he first saw Eliab, David's big brother, and thought, this is is the king for sure. The Lord tells Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel judged from the outside because that's all humans can do. All we can do is judge from the outside. God said, no, 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 I'm looking at a deeper level. Then, fast forward to the next chapter. So David, after being instructed by his father to go and deliver the lunch to his brothers who were at war, and he left his sheep with a servant, then he gets all caught up in the Goliath thing and he's talking to Saul. Look at what Eliab says. Now Eliab, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, For you have come down to see the battle. Eliab looked at the actions and he said, I know. I know what you're doing, David. I know your motivation. And David's just like, I was just bringing the carrots and the celery. (laughs) And Eliab was bringing judgment on the heart of a man who was a man after God's own heart. And Eliab missed it. We need to be so careful not to act like God. Don't depend on human judgment. And what I'm saying there really is don't depend on other people's judgment to define who you are. Let the gospel define who you are. And don't depend on your own judgment to think about the intentions and thoughts of other people. Then look with me at the end of verse 5. It says, then each one will receive his commendation from god now that's surprising you would expect that paul would say after talking about judgment he would say then each one will receive his or her judgment from god but it doesn't say that it says commendation what does commendation mean commendation like i made a book recommendation earlier i I praised the book didn't i i wanted you to hear about it so i pray i repraised it to you that's a recommendation to commend something or someone is to praise Now, when we think about Jesus coming back and the sky being opened up and the new heavens and the new earth, we're expecting that the praise will be from us to him. But Paul totally flips the script here and says, no, 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 when Christ comes back, yes, we're gonna praise him, but are you ready for this? He is going to praise you. He's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. How are we to regard spiritual leaders as servants and as stewards who are to be faithful? Are you ready to hear the voice of your savior tell you, well done? C.S. Lewis calls this the weight of glory. This soul crushing reality to think that the creator of the world, that him who does all things well is gonna tell us well done. Lewis uses the illustration of a picture of a toddler over in Hope Kids, a little three-year-old, and she builds this this little tower of three blocks. And then God bless those Hope Kids leader. The Hope Kids leader says, wow, sweetheart, that's a great tower. And then what happens in that little girl's heart? She doesn't know what to do. She starts running on the spot. She doesn't know what to do with herself. She's so excited that this grown-up, would come down to her and and be impressed with something that she has done. Lewis says, even dogs love to hear, oh, aren't you a good boy? Aren't you a good boy? That every creature is hardwired to receive praise from a superior. And yes, because of the fall, and because of sin and total depravity and that warps into the fear of man and all kinds of other, but there's, there's a kernel in there that's something that's pure, that's coming for all of us. And when we remember that, when we remember the destination where we're heading, the Lord Jesus telling us, well done. That's what's gonna stop us from exiting on the exit of worldly wisdom or exiting on the celebrity pastor or dividing into groups or exiting on to judging others or letting the judgment of others define who you are, understanding that he who has done all things well is going to tell you well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to Uh, metabolize what you have just fed to us, Lord. There's a lot for us to digest and to process, but I pray that it would result in righteous living, holiness, sanctification, and joy. God, I pray that you would keep us on that path of loving and living for you and honoring you in all things. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.